Hey everyone, this is Ted O'Connell. Thank you for checking out the Med Prep to Go USMLE Step 3 podcast sample episodes. If you find that this audio content brings value to your studies, we encourage you to go to medpreptogo.com and check out the subscription podcast. You'll be able to see the entire content outline Dr. Raj Dasgupta and I put together, and you can subscribe if it looks like the audio content will help you succeed on USMLE Step 3. The podcast is completely ad-free and includes over 50 hours of high-yield material for the USMLE Step 3 exam. If you found this Step 3 podcast, there's a good chance you've listened to the Crush Step 1 or the USMLE Step 2 Secrets podcasts, you've used our free question bank, or you've listened to Dr. Raj's Beyond the Pearls podcast. We hope that whatever you've used in the past has helped you with your studies. As you may know, the goals of MedPrep to Go are to allow you to study on the go to get time back in your day and also to help cut the costs of medical education. We think we've priced the Step 3 podcast very competitively to bring you a great product while allowing us to cover the costs of putting this together and keep it hosted without ads. So thank you for checking this out and for your ongoing engagement with our content. In this episode, we're going to cover bleeding disorders and reactions to blood transfusions. So let's start with how specific diseases affect various clotting tests. And this we'll try to put into audio format here. Maybe a good idea to take a look at it in in a chart form as well, if you have any difficulty remembering uh, any of these patterns. So starting with von Willebrand disease, the PT is normal. PTT is high, bleeding time is high, and platelet count and red blood cell count are both normal. And remember that this is an autosomal dominant disease, so you should be looking for a family history. Hemophilia A and B, the PT is normal, PTT is high, bleeding time is normal, and platelet count and red blood cell count are normal. This is an X-linked recessive disease, and hemophilia A is uh, characterized by low factor 7, and hemophilia B is characterized by low factor 9. In hemophilia C, the PT is normal, PTT is high, bleeding time, platelet count, and red blood cell count are all normal. This is an autosomal recessive disease characterized by low levels of factor 11. In disseminated intravascular coagulation, the PT, PTT, and bleeding time are all high, platelet count is low, and red blood cell count is either normal or low. You want to be looking for an appropriate history in the clinical vignette to suggest DIC, and this is characterized by low levels of factor 8. In liver failure, the PT and PTT are high, bleeding time is normal, platelet count is either normal or low, and red blood cell count is either normal or low. Remember with liver failure, if you're trying to correct a bleeding issue, don't bother giving vitamin K because this is ineffective. And instead, you should be using fresh frozen plasma. In the setting of heparin, the 
PT is normal, PTT is high, bleeding time is normal, platelet count is either normal or low, and red blood cell count is normal. And you want to remember to watch for thrombocytopenia and thrombosis in the setting of heparin use. With warfarin, the PT is high, PTT, bleeding time, platelet count, and red blood cell count should all be normal. Remember that warfarin is a vitamin K antagonist affecting factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. In ITP, the PT is normal, PTT is normal, bleeding time is high, platelet count is low, and red blood cell count is normal. And watch for a preceding upper respiratory infection in the vignette as a potential trigger. In thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, or TTP, the PT is normal, PTT is normal, bleeding time is high, platelet count is low, and red blood cell count is low. In scurvy, the PT, PTT, bleeding time, platelet count, and red blood cell count are all normal. Look for fingernail and gum hemorrhages, as well as bone hemorrhages, And remember that this is caused by vitamin C deficiency. When thinking about disseminated intravascular coagulation, remember that the most common cause is pregnancy and obstetric complications, which are the cause in about 50% of cases, followed by malignancy, sepsis, and trauma, particularly head trauma, as well as prostate surgery and snake bites. DIC usually manifests with a bleeding diathesis, but may have thrombotic tendencies. In the vignette and description of the exam, look for the classic oozing or bleeding from puncture and intravenous sites. Remember that the PT, PTT, and bleeding time are all high. DIC is the only disorder on the USMLE Step 3 exam that prolongs all three of these tests. Other potential clues to the presence of DIC include a positive D-dimer, increased fibrin degradation products, thrombocytopenia, decreased fibrin, and decreased clotting factors, including factor 8. With DIC, you want to focus on treating the underlying cause such as giving antibiotics for an infection or evacuating the uterus if there are retained products of conception that may be the cause. Um, You may need to give transfusions with fresh frozen plasma or in rare cases, heparin may be needed, but only if thrombosis occurs. Remember that the prothrombin time, or PT, measures the function of the extrinsic clotting pathway and is prolonged by warfarin, and the PTT measures the function of the intrinsic clotting pathway and is prolonged by heparin, and the bleeding time measures platelet function and is prolonged by aspirin. It's important to remember that vitamin C deficiency, or scurvy, causes bleeding in a similar pattern to that seen with low platelets, that is, splinter and gum hemorrhages and petechiae. You can also see 
perifollicular and subperiosteal hemorrhages that are unique to scurvy. These patients have a poor dietary history and can present with myalgias and arthralgias. Physical examination is marked by evidence of capillary fragility because the bleeding is due to collagen problems in the vessels. This is treated with oral vitamin C. Other causes of petechiae or platelet-type bleeding include uremia because it results in platelet dysfunction, inherited connective tissue disorders like Marfan syndrome and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and chronic corticosteroid use, which causes capillary fragility. And then finally, remember that vitamin K is needed for hepatic synthesis of factors 2, 7, 9, and 10, as well as for protein C and protein S. Chronic liver disease can cause prolongation of the PT and the INR because the liver is unable to synthesize clotting factors even in the presence of adequate vitamin K levels. In the setting of active bleeding, this problem should be corrected with fro fresh frozen plasma, as we mentioned previously, though the effects will only be temporary. Vitamin K is ineffective in the setting of severe liver disease. Now let's talk about transfusions and transfusion reactions. And we'll start with the indications for the various blood products. Whole blood is used only for rapid, massive blood loss or for exchange transfusions, such as in the setting of TTP or poisoning. Packed red blood cells are used for routine transfusions. Washed red blood cells are free of traces of plasma, white cells, and platelets. It's good for use in immunoglobulin A or IgA deficiency, as well as allergic or previously sensitized patients. Platelets are given for symptomatic thrombocytopenia, and guidelines vary a little bit, but this is typically below 10,000 per microliter or a little bit higher, around 20,000 per microliter, if there is evidence of bleeding. Granulocytes are used on rare occasions for neutropenia. And fresh frozen plasma, remember it contains all clotting factors, so it's used for bleeding diathesis when you cannot wait for vitamin K to take effect, such as in DIC or severe warfarin poisoning, or when vitamin K won't work. Remember, severe liver failure, vitamin K won't work in that setting. In an emergency, type O negative blood can be used to avoid a reaction when you can't wait for blood typing or when the blood bank does not have the patient's blood type yet. And it's important to be able to recognize the signs and symptoms of a blood transfusion reaction. You want to look for a febrile reaction for things like chills, fever, headache, and back pain from antibodies to white blood cells. You want to look for a hemolytic reaction, which can present with anxiety or discomfort, shortness of breath, chest pain, jaundice, and even shock from antibodies to red blood cells, or an allergic reaction presenting with urticaria, swelling, dizziness, shortness of breath, wheezing, and evidence of anaphylaxis to an unknown component in donor serum. 
Oliguria may also be an associated finding. If you suspect a transfusion reaction, the first step is to stop the transfusion. If oliguria is present, you want to treat with intravenous fluids and diuresis, typically with furosemide or mannitol. And then finally, it's important to recognize that there still are risks with transfusion that need to be explained to a patient prior to giving a transfusion. There's a small but real risk of infection, usually viral infections such as hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV, and cytomegalovirus. And then the patient can also develop non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, which is transfusion-associated circulatory overload or transfusion-related acute lung injury. And they can also develop hyperkalemia from hemolysis. With large transfusions, typically over five units of packed red blood cells, bleeding diathesis may result from dilutional thrombocytopenia and citrate, which is a blood preservative and calcium chelator that prevents clotting. Look for oozing from puncture or intravenous sites. With massive transfusion, there is a possibility of developing hypocalcemia due to the citrate preservative binding to calcium. Mm -hmm.